Hi, I'm Neha Gandhi, COO of Girlboss, and your host for this week's episode of Girlboss Radio. I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that you probably have a debit card and maybe even a credit card. Maybe you've taken out loans in the past for school, for a car, for a house, or maybe you've got a mortgage. And because of all that, you have some sort of financial identity. As in, you can go to a bank and ask for a loan and they'll be able to help you because they have some idea of how you spend your money and how you repay your money. But around the world, there are billions of people who don't have any sort of credit history or financial identity. And it can be a huge problem with a lot of financial consequences. To help solve this problem, in 2011, Shivani Saroya founded a financial tech company called Tala. Tala is a mobile consumer lending app that provides financial services for people in East Africa, India, the Philippines, and Mexico. It also provides microloans via its smartphone lending app to people in underserved and emerging markets. Shivani says she felt compelled to close the gap in access to financial services when she noticed how people couldn't get access to a loan in many underserved countries around the world. To solve this, we're going to actually have to take a totally different approach than just, you know, someone who believes in the customer. I actually knew I needed to actually build real data systems, real data to prove once and for all that this population was credit worthy and had very high potential. Welcome to Girlboss Radio, the show for and about ambitious women, exploring the wins, losses, and insights learned on the winding road to success. During my chat with Shivani, we spoke about what it was like to go from working at an investment bank to founding a mission-based company, how she ensured there was product market fit to what she was doing, and how she got the backing of investors. Here's our conversation. Shivani, welcome to Girl Boss Radio. Thank you. So excited to be here. Thrilled to have you. Um, I actually want to start by asking, what do you tell people when they ask you, what do you do? I say I work at a company called Tala. And is that intentional? Because that's a little bit of a different answer from, I'm an entrepreneur who has built a hugely successful global company that's raised over $100 million, including from companies like PayPal. I'm changing the world. And that puts me in an elite category of female founders. That's not what you say. (laughs) It is not what I say. I think part of it is I do work there. And I really think of it as the way that I should be describing what I do is being part of that team. And so I always think of it as it's not that I do this or that I founded this company, but it's really about a we. I love that. And that probably really sort of forms the culture at your company in a huge way. I think so. I mean, I think that really what we think about is how do we create that equitable environment where everyone actually has a voice at the table. And, you know, in that sense, there's an ownership that comes with it because we really are saying we're a we. Yeah. There's something really noble and high minded about that. But I also have to ask, it feels a little bit gendered. Like I can't think of a single, to put a finer point on it, straight white man who would be like, I work at so-and-so company. Um, Does it ever cut the other way? Like, do you feel like you're ever dinged for the level of humility you come to the table with? I think so in, in the sense that with that humility, I think you need to, 
you need to pair it with decisiveness. And so I, I think, you know, I'm always balancing those two things, which is the humility, the collaborative nature, the team nature in me is very strong. At the same time, as the person that did found the company and as the CEO, it does require that as the person that has a really important seat at the table, I come at it with also that decisiveness. That's interesting. And also with, or I'm asking really, do you also feel like you need to have some level of maybe not when you're meeting your friends for a glass of wine, but when you're on stage at Forbes of saying, hey, this is the thing I own? Like, do you come with a different level of braggadocio to those kinds of tables? So I tend not to, um, but I do realize, to your point, that, you know, part of representing the company, maybe not with my friends, um, but at the at the panels, at the Forbes, at, you know, conferences, to be able to stand out, it does require that you are kind of going outside of your comfort zone and potentially, you know, elevating um, and actually making sure that people really do know who you are. Yeah, I guess it's, I mean... What I love about what you're talking about is that it's you finding your own personal style of leadership rather than this cookie cutter version of you have to lead like a man, you have to do this thing in the most forceful way, you have to be as aggressive as possible. Have you always had that confidence in your own leadership style? A little bit of it. I mean, I think kind of being raised in an Indian family, I think part of it was, oh, we're, we're never boastful. Right. Because the minute that you believe you've made it, you've actually stopped learning. And so I believe that success is really about that constant pursuit of learning and curiosity and constantly getting better. And I think part of maybe that fear in me has always been, oh, if I am really outwardly confident or I'm saying all the things that I've already achieved, will I stop pursuing them? Because you feel like you've already made it. Um, And I think that's been part of my upbringing to think that. I also think that there's another part of me that does feel like so much in society nowadays, uh, especially with what we see on Instagram and everything. It's like, where is the substance, right? And part of what I've constantly thought of is if I show the results, if I do the work, I don't really need to go out there and tell people what I do because they will find out about it. And that's worked out pretty well for you so far. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Tala because the concept of what you guys are doing is so simple in some ways. You're bringing access to credit and to lending to millions of people across the globe who wouldn't have that access otherwise. Explain to us how that works exactly. So it's interesting. It's it's very simple in the sense that you you look at the stats. Only 30% of the adult population worldwide is even covered by a credit bureau. And so in that sense, it's like, okay, not only are these people not, do they not have credit scores, they're actually not even identified. These are people that we don't even see today. Um, And so then the, the question becomes, not only do we not see them, we're not serving them. So financial institutions are just totally ill equipped to actually serve this population. And so it's super simple as the problem because I think we think of it as like, this should be a basic human right. The ability to actually have agency to change your life, to have access to credit. And then you dive deeper and deeper and you realize, oh no, this is an actual like infrastructure and system problem. Um, Because we are going into the fact that 85% of the world is cash-based. 
So we actually don't even know that much about these individuals. And then in addition to that, it's the fact that national IDs actually don't exist across most markets. Um, so the, the solution to really saying, yes, we want to provide them with access to credit is, is actually not as simple. It's actually rebuilding the entire infrastructure for a financial system to exist in you know, most of the developing world. So suppose you're someone who has spent some time abroad, seen this problem, identified that you want to solve it. What's the first step? Like, where did you start? Because that sounds so complicated. I started in the most simple sense that I can think of as being proximate to the problem. Um, And I really fundamentally believe that when we think about systemic problems, unless we viscerally feel it ourselves and see why the problem exists, I don't think that you can come to a solution that will actually fundamentally solve it. You'll create a vitamin. You know, you won't actually create the the real cure for it. Um, And so the way I started was actually just doing individual interviews. Um, I ended up actually interviewing a little over 3,500 people in person across nine different countries. And what did you learn? I learned that people were incredibly credit worthy, that there was real value um, that I was able to see in these individuals' businesses, in the, the financial decisions that they were making, tons and tons of mental calculations going into each and every transaction. Um, I saw really, I think, uh, well-positioned business owners who were, again, you know, just like the rest of us, driven, um, wanted to grow their businesses. I saw people that were incredibly embarrassed when they would walk into a bank. They felt unfairly judged. Um, And so I really walked in their shoes and I was able to then come out of that with that belief in the potential of this of this customer base. And I was also able to see how the marketplace and how financial institutions really viewed them. And so then that allowed me to understand this is a double sided problem. And so to solve this, we're going to actually have to take a totally different approach than just, you know, someone who believes in the customer. I actually knew I needed to actually build real data systems, real data to prove once and for all that this population was credit worthy and had very high potential. And so what was the next step? Like, did you outsource that to a huge resource institution? Did you embark on more field work? No, I mean, I guess what happened then was I ended up actually reaching out to potential mentors and advisors. I mean, I really just said, someone must be solving this problem, right? Because it's such a massive problem. I couldn't be the first person that stumbled on this. So I really said, I'll just join someone and work with them. Uh, so I, I went on to LinkedIn. I went on to Twitter. I tried to talk to everyone I possibly could. And so I tried to connect with about 1,500 people. Had a pretty good hit rate. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of people were willing to talk to me and share their opinions, share what solutions had worked. And over time, you know, I actually, one, amassed an amazing advisory group. But a lot of people just said, you should just do this. No one else is doing it. And so I'll help you along the way, but do it. And so that was really the impetus for me saying, okay, well, now what? And so I learned how to code. <laughs> and I just, I kind of started while I was working full time. And did you, did you take a class? Did you like go on Khan Academy? Like what was your like next step in terms of like learning how to code? 
I mean, I think what's amazing nowadays is that there are resources. And so I didn't have to be the best coder. I needed to just be able to test my idea. And so I learned on YouTube. I learned through other blogs. Um, I was just able to understand that kind of knowing that this data existed on mobile devices, my goal was just how could I actually seamlessly gather that data and actually now put that to use and create kind of the first kind of credit model. Um, and so it was a really simple prototype, but kind of had to do it on my own. That's so interesting. So you built it all by yourself. Would you make that recommendation to anyone who's considering founding something technical but is a non-technical founder that everyone should at least know a little bit of how to build that thing for themselves? I do. I mean, I think what it enabled me to do is really, again, I, I think of it as a solution is really, um, it's really a system, right? So really, it's a value chain. Whether we're creating an e-commerce product, whether we're creating a financial app, you want to know start to finish how your product works. And so I think maybe something that I've learned along my career is you want to have that in-depth understanding like just enough to be dangerous in every little area. And so that way, when when it comes to your metrics, you have that like spidey sense of when something is working and not working. Right. You can when people tell you things and report up, you're not like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm just going to trust you. But you have an idea. Exactly. I mean, I think especially as when you're scaling a company, it's, you know, you're going to eventually get further and further removed, right, from the very detailed metrics. And so if at a macro level you can't actually have that good judgment, it's going to cause problems. We'll get right back to Shivani in just a second. But first, I want to tell you a little bit about ZipRecruiter. Oh, hiring. So stressful and it takes so much time. Currently at Girlboss, we're hiring for an operations associate as well as a social strategist, and it's taking up so much time, which is why I'm so grateful that we work with ZipRecruiter. That's ziprecruiter.com slash girlboss. We love working with ZipRecruiter because they send our jobs to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, so you don't have to worry about posting to every single different board. Plus, they're effective. In fact, they're so effective that four out of five of the employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site within the first day. And right now, all of you can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash girlboss. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash G-I-R-L-B-O-S-S. ZipRecruiter.com slash girlboss. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Now back to my conversation with Shivani. So you build this thing, you have a prototype, you're using your savings, you're working full time. What's Who's the first hire you make when you're like, okay, this is working, I'm going to hire someone? So we actually made three hires. We made a product hire, we made a finance data hire, and then we also made an operations hire. And that was really the core team initially. And how did you think about what great hiring was going to look like? How did you think about you know, those three people, it was just you. And then it's, you know, your idea has to scale to these three people, but those three people really form the culture and the ethos of everything that you're going to be. How did you think about that? 
I was, I have to admit, pretty lucky in that, you know, while I guess I was looking for them, they were looking for me. And so it's not that they wanted to necessarily found this company or this particular problem, but they were also very aligned and self-selected into that mission. And so in a sense, it like really felt like serendipity and that, you know, we were able to find each other. And I think maybe if I like zoom out, the thing that really made it work was we were all willing to do everything. And you would only do that if really fundamentally you're all grounded in our mission is to solve this problem. And so it's not about each one of us because we didn't know each other at all. And we had no money. (laughs) (laughs) And so it really was, okay, we're going to work out of my bedroom and we're just going to get this thing going. Um, And we're going to come in every single day and hustle. And I think what I love is that now your company is 200, 300. How many people are there now? 540 people. Oh my goodness. So now you're not four people, you're 540 people. I've been to your offices and I think that that culture is pervasive. That idea that everyone is in it together. People seem really happy to be at work. They seem very empowered by the mission. How have you retained that culture as you've grown? So somebody gave me this um, this piece of advice and You know, he said, he essentially said, when it comes to culture, when it comes to your values as a team, when you think about, you know, when you're scaling that company um, or the team, I should say, sometimes you actually have to make the unconscious conscious. And so he kind of gave me uh, an anecdote where he said, you know, when you go to a new country and you're crossing the street in your own home country, you know exactly where the cars come from, like exactly what, you know. Uh, which way the traffic is moving. But in a new country, you may not know. And so you are going to, for a second, look for instructions. And it's the same kind of thing as when someone new enters your team, if you don't give them a set of instructions or something to actually assimilate into, then in some ways they are going to be lost and all they're going to bring with them is their culture from their previous company. And so in that same way, I think one of the things that we've done is document our founding principles and our values so that we can actually incorporate them into our day-to-day. How does that manifest itself? Like, is it written on the walls? Does everyone get handed a binder? Like, what happens? It, it, there is a binder. So we've got the, the handbook. Um, but then what we've also done is done really fun things where... You know, we do peer bonuses where people can give each other instead of just your manager giving you one. um, It's really more about, again, acknowledging the great work that your peers are doing. And instead of it just being about the work, it's actually, does this work actually resonate with our founding principles? And so someone may, you know, help one of their teammates out or stay up really late. And it's actually, we'll, we'll hashtag every single one of the peer bonuses with one of the values. And so that value might be believe in people or challenge the limits. And so on a day-to-day basis, you're constantly seeing those things show up. Other things that we've done that are fun is we'll do skits where it's improv about what are times and examples when we have actually, you know, behaved in line with those principles and what are times when we haven't because it's just as important to actually acknowledge when we've actually broken that trust. I want to go back to the bonuses. Are you talking about cash compensation? Like everyone has the ability to grant like company money to their peers? 
Yeah, so every single month uh, we give $10 a month to every single pump, uh, person at the company where they can actually give each other spot bonuses. Oh, I love that. Um, that's such a great idea. I know you're hiring right now. What does that process look like? How, like, What does a great candidate look like coming to Tala today? How can someone set themselves apart from all the other candidates in the pool? The biggest thing that we look for in a, I would say, you know, executive leader, every leader at the company is humility. And I, and I know this is full circle, but I think if we think about it, what we are doing at Tala is never been done before. And so you, you actually have to come in just willing to learn, to be curious, to ask the questions. And also at this point, you know, there is a lot of domain knowledge within the company. There are folks there that have been there now for five years. And so you actually want to be able to say, hey, we're going to make things even better, but there's been amazing work already done, right? So there's that, there, that humility, that curiosity. And then of course, it's the skill set and the experience you bring and things like that. Um, but for success, I think it's about coming in with that, uh, that willingness to trust. How do you go about letting those cultures of new people and sort of older people who feel like founding employees, how do you make them gel? Because I always find it's like, how do you keep people from being like, oh, we don't do things that way and, you know, becoming resistant to change? I think part of it is just cultural, right? I think, you know, if we, if we, if we look at sort of the way we've outlined our founding principles, they're really just, they're a set of principles that map our founding story and the journey along the way. And part of that is one of our founding principles is listen and learn. And so if, you know, the people that are existing on the team really embody that principle of listen and learn, then in some ways, it's actually, you should be open to everyone. You should be listening and learning to our customers, from your peers, and any new hires that come in. Constantly open. I love that. I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about fundraising because you've raised over a hundred million dollars uh, so far in a series of different rounds of funding. I'm curious first and foremost what you've learned or what's changed about your pitch. Obviously your business has changed, but in terms of your fundamental approach, what have you learned that's changed the way you pitch since that first you know angel round or seed round you went out for versus the most recent round you did? So I'll go to what has actually stayed the same um, first, and then I'll go into kind of what's changed. I think one thing I've realized is I always start I always start with our vision, our mission, and the opportunity. In every single deck, that has always stayed the same. Um, and actually, it's really interesting that even our current investors and others, as they do reference calls, they'll actually call that out and say, sure, their solution continues to adapt. Right? as we go to different countries, as we pursue different products and features. But the mission and the vision has actually always stayed the same. Is it literally the same slides? It is. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> I mean, we make them a little prettier every time, <laughs> design-wise. And the next part that actually has stayed the same is actually this, this like experimental way that we talk about the company. And so we talk about it as, you know, from the first day in terms of our seed round, here are the set of experiments that we believe will get us to the next stage and to that ultimate vision, 
right? So we're asking you for capital because we're actually going to go take some risks. Um, and we have some things that we want to continue to grow, but some things that we want to kind of pursue and see if they have legs. And so in every single round, that's how we've actually outlined our deck is by actually saying, here are the questions that we want to answer by the next uh, round or by two years from now. Um, and then that way we can hold ourselves accountable as well. And it's easier than when those people join our board to say, did we do it or not? Yeah, it's you're laying out a really clear thing that you're going to solve. Yeah. Um, and this might come from kind of maybe my background as more the researcher, where it's really hypothesis and then, you know, key results, conclusion. <laughs> um, the things that have actually changed, I would say, in the decks or the different stages of fundraising um, have been much more of saying, okay, you went from prototype to results, and now really it's like there's a core business that's functioning, and we have to constantly show that that core business is optimizing and getting better over time. Um, and then, then there's the what comes next aspect. And so that's the stuff I think has changed. That's really cool. And you're pretty active here in LA and beyond in the startup scene. I know about so many women who you've advised, who you've potentially guided along their paths. Um, as you see other women specifically, because we're Girl Boss Radio, um, but just generally other pitches, like what's the best advice you want to give people that you sort of find yourself giving over and over again? I think it's been funny that I think there is this one thing that everyone's like, oh, Shvani's going to say this. <laughs> but I do I do believe a lot in knowing your business fundamentals. Um, and as I hear a lot of pitches, I hear amazing ideas. Um, and again, amazing like trajectory of where people want to go. But I actually really kind of think of it as if you can show in the investor community, especially as a woman, that you know your unit economics down, right? You know how much it costs to acquire a customer. You know how much it costs to serve that customer. You know what the ultimate, you know, let's say LTV of that customer is going to be, even if you have estimates. It really goes a long way to really show that you, again, know your business inside and out. And it's not just that you have a crazy idea. That's so interesting because I think sometimes I feel like the problem is the opposite. And I think that there's like a happy middle ground here, but it's like, I also see a lot of getting too in the weeds, right? You're going out for a seed and you are presenting a deck that invites questions that feel like series A level questions because you've gone so deep on the data. How do you balance that? It is true. I mean, I, I look back at our series B and you're totally right. You know, I, I was inviting questions and at some point you're like, we can't keep going into diligence. They need to make a decision. And that probably comes back to, you know, probably what we were talking about earlier, which is a little bit of it is standing up for yourself, right? And saying, hey, you know, at some point, either say yes or no. Um, and I think what was interesting is I had those moments. And when I did it, the investors did back down. And they said, oh, are we getting a little too intense here? <laughs> oh, I love that. Good yeah. for you. And, and that's the, it was a learning moment for me to actually realize, oh, yeah, I don't have to open up our team for this, right? And to actually say, hey, you want us to run our business. You don't actually want us to actually continue doing this analysis for you. Um, and the right investors, I think, will, again, if they're excited, will lean into it and immediately back down. Um, and then the wrong ones will actually say, okay, we need more data. And so then you know where you stand. 
That's interesting. How did you cultivate the confidence to get there? Because it's easy. It, it sounds really hard, right? It's hard not to lead with fear and not to be like, well, if I say no to these guys or if I give them an ultimatum of some kind, then maybe we're going to run out of cash. Maybe no one's going to say yes. I took the chance. You know, I think I I was reflecting on this actually earlier in the week. Um, I actually just got back from Mexico and India and I was uh, with, a, you know, talking to many of our customers. And, you know, one of our customers was telling me a story of, you know, how she decided to use the Tala app uh, to get access to credit for her husband and her run um, this energy drink company. <laughs> um, and I said, you know, what got you over the hump? How'd you find out about us? Because we're relatively new. And she honestly, she said, you know, well, I didn't have any other options. And so I had nothing else to lose. And it kind of stuck with me in that, you know, that that's why I believe we exist. We exist in those moments where someone is vulnerable, where they don't think they have the opportunity to pursue their dreams or to make their life better. And, you know, when I heard the story, I was like, oh, this is what I need to think about all the time, right? I'm lucky to be able to do this work and to solve this problem. Um, and I always say this internally at Tala is that all of us are super talented, smart, we're driven, we can all go get other jobs, but we're here to do this thing. And so we have nothing else to lose. And so, so we can't be afraid to fail because then we will. I'll get back to my conversation with Shivani in just a minute. But first, I want to tell you a little bit about Sakara. Full disclosure, I am a notorious meal skipper. It's not great, and I know it's not healthy, but it's challenging to plan for breakfast, lunch, dinner when you're on the go. And that's why I'm actually really grateful that I've been trying Sakara Life this past week because they send you these amazing, organic, ready-to-eat meals that are really delicious. They're plant-based, very helpful because I'm a vegetarian, and they're gluten-free, and they really help you feel healthy. Plus, they come in these handy-dandy containers. They slip right into your refrigerator, and then you take them to work in the cooler, and you can eat them. And it's really, really easy. It enhances your energy, and it's chock full of ingredients that improve your digestion and are great for your health. And the menu of chef-crafted dishes changes every week, so you never get bored. And right now, Sakara is offering our listeners $60 off their first order when they go to sakara.com slash girlboss. That's Sakara, S-A-K-A-R-A dot com slash girlboss to get $60 off your first order. Sakara.com slash girlboss. Now, back to that conversation with Shivani. I want to go back a little bit to your pitch because you've pitched really powerful boardrooms full of, you know, best in class investors. Um, You guys recently took a strategic investment from PayPal. How do you project strength and ownership and confidence? And I'm asking partially because you're physically small um, and, you know, you sound youthful, you look youthful. Does that ever cut you the wrong way? Are people like underestimating you for that? Definitely. <laughs> I think I think it's it's uh, one of the things I hear the most often is when people meet me in person, they're like, I thought you were going to be taller. <laughs> Don't know what to do about that. <laughs> Pretty funny. But 
I think it is fun because I, I actually love it. I mean, I think this goes back to the fact that I, I love challenges, right? And so I love the fact that coming in, being underestimated, you have, you just have, I think it puts you actually in a better place because you can then wow people because they're not even expecting it. They have no idea that you're even coming for them. Oh, um, I love that. So maybe that's like a weird tenacity thing, but I get excited about it. In boardrooms, I think the way I always start every single board meeting is I actually stand up, even though everyone else is sitting. Mm -hmm. I stand up and I actually deliver our mission and our vision to the board again. And I kind of have that moment of this is why we're here. So let's all remember that. And now let's go into reviewing the business. Um, So that's one is like, I think, a framing aspect of how you set the context and kind of putting yourself in that leadership position from the beginning. So don't let the conversation get away from you. I think the other thing that I do is I do create a much more informal setting where I'll invite other members of the leadership team in, not only when they're presenting, but to actually hear the content and to make it a conversation and a discussion instead of hey, the board is here to judge us or to, you know, hold us accountable. It's, it's we're here as partners. Um, You're not so, putting on a show for them. Yeah. I think that is the, that's the thing I think that I've learned along the way is how to have the best board meetings and for them to trust you is for them to really feel like you've shown us your metrics, you're transparent, but we're here to actually challenge your thinking and to be those thought partners. That's really cool. Now, with all of the amazing funding, you get to do great work, you get to have your hypotheses and test them, but there's also a certain expectation, there's a certain pressure that comes with it. I'm curious, well, how do you think about the end game? Is there a milestone or a moment in your head where you're going to be like, we did it? Yeah, I know. It is. It's funny. It's like, how do we define what that success is? Yeah. And I mean, it's it's funny. It's like for a company like us that's going after such a massive problem, the fact that you know, there's over three billion people around the world that don't have formal access to credit, that are underserved by traditional financial institutions. It's like, is it three three billion people? At which point we'll be like success, <laughs> or is it a hundred million people? What does that mean for us? Um, does it mean an IPO? Does it mean an acquisition? You know, all those different things. And I think I keep going back to success for us, I think, is one, I think, realizing our customers should have access, but they should actually have choice of products. And so for me, success is actually kind of moving the needle on what is the availability of financial products, both ours and other people's potentially in the market. So I I think of it as what we've done is actually created competition. And that's really cool if I think about it from an impact perspective. So you're actually hoping that there are more competitors. I do. I mean, I think it pushes us. So I think you can have respect for your competitors and compete at the same time. That's cool. Um, What about success for you? Because I think something we talk about here a lot that I heard you talking about a little bit earlier is this idea that you're always learning, you're always growing, you're always reaching for something new, right? You're never done, but you have accomplished a lot already. You've built this huge business and you've spoken at so many incredible stages and you're changing people's lives. So given all of that, what is the thing that you're aspiring to? What does success mean for you on a personal level? 
I think I've been thinking a lot about this as we've scaled the company and the team. I think success for me is, you know, I do think part of it is is really owning my voice. Um, so what is that distinct leadership voice that I may have and that I can actually bring, you know, out into the world? Um, I think part of that has been, you know, being able to share the vision for not just what Tala does, but how we do it. Um, how are we growing the team? How do I actually hopefully want to impact everyone on our team um, so that they can actually pursue their passion? That's been something that I've been realizing I'm really passionate about and something that I want to make more time for so that, I don't know, that that that, that kind of leadership style can actually develop further. I also think another thing that I've realized is I think there's another level of impact, which is the different companies in our markets that don't actually get the visibility that we do. There's some amazing entrepreneurs that are having great impact, and they are facing the challenges of not just gender or race, but actually just they're not in the U.S., and so they get overlooked. Um, And so how can I actually help influence that aspect of the ecosystem as well? So it's both the how we do the work and who else we can actually shine a light on. How do you think about scale? Like, Do you fundamentally believe that getting from zero to three million is harder than getting from three million to 30 million or vice versa? I, I do. I actually think that one of the things I've learned along the way is, you know, every time you kind of get to that next thing, you kind of have to reinvent everything and you have to rethink everything. So I think back to that point of when we were three people and then we became 10 people. You know, it was like, hey, we're not sitting around my, you know, kitchen table anymore. We had to get we had to get a bigger table (laughs) We had to actually move into a co-working space. Um, And then when we went from being at 10 people and sitting around a table to 30 people, we had to redo things again. And so there's this constant like breaking and recreating. Um, And I think that happens on the product side. And I think that happens on so the product and platform side. And then I do think it happens internally with culture and and teams. You work really hard. I know that you go home after work, you have dinner, you make beautiful meals, and then you work some more. And I know that you're putting in hours on the weekends and you're not necessarily glorifying any of that. But do you think that's just what it takes? Like you need to be in it all the time in order to build a successful company? I do. I think that we all talk a lot about work-life balance. (laughs) and of course we should make sure that we're healthy along the way because honestly at the end of the day it's like your number one priority is to make sure you can do the work and if you are not yourself in a good position to do that no one's going to benefit so I definitely think that that's important but then I think the, the reality is to go do something and be successful at it whatever that is you have to be somewhat obsessed um, and you do with that obsession I think you love it and so I don't know. I don't I don't always think that there's just the grind. It is a pursuit of the thing that you truly are aligned to. It's like your personal time and your work time are blended in some ways. Yeah, I mean, you should be doing the things you love, hopefully. How do you keep up your energy in order to do that? Because it's hard to go, go, go all the time. Um, I always, I will say for me, like the last three weeks have been so amazing in particular because I have been back, you know, in our markets getting to to refocus on what comes next for Tala, um, talking to our customers, getting to meet new teammates, 
Um, and I love that. Like, I love the accessibility of that from both the product side, the team side. Um, and so that spirit that I see in our new team members, kind of, it energizes me. Um, I think other things that energize me is also, I would say, personal time. So, I, you know, my favorite animal, surprisingly, is a sloth. <laughs> um, and I think part of that is I do like my little, like, you know, slothiness time where I can just kind of curl up, read a book, watch a movie, you know, do the things that actually kind of get me back into being able to just be out there a lot. Are you reading anything good right now? I actually just finished Dare to Lead by Brene Brown. I love that. And again, it goes back to this idea of how do you really own your voice? Actually, there's another book that I did read that I highly recommend, and it's called Essentialism. And it is really about the fact that you have to focus. And so there's so many things that all of us say yes to. Um, and this goes to our personal time, but really to our team's time. And how can we actually kind of pare down in the way that we think about it? How can we pare down the questions? How can we make it so that things are actually achievable? Teams actually lose I think the most morale when they're under-resourced, but also when there's that lack of clarity. I want to do a quick speed round of just some great advice and just looking back at your career. Your biggest career victory? Biggest career victory is quitting my job, most likely. (laughs) That's amazing. Your big goal for this week? Biggest goal for this week is we've got a board meeting next week. So biggest goal, get all our decks out. Best hiring advice? I would say focus on culture, focus on values alignment as the first starting point. And then your best advice for an entrepreneur who has an idea but doesn't know where to start. Don't be afraid to share your idea with many people and go go talk to as many people as you can before you start to build a company around it. Amazing. Shivani, thank you so much for being with us today. This is so fun. Thank you so much. That's it for this week's episode of Girl Boss Radio. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Shivani Soroya for joining us. As always, just a reminder that every rating and review you leave us helps other people discover the show. So please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, send us an email at podcasts at girlboss.com. We love hearing your thoughts on the show. Talk to you next time. Bye.